You're listening to Cornerstone Conversations, a podcast by Cornerstone Baptist Church in Fort Worth, Texas. My name is Jeremy McNair, and I'm the worship pastor at Cornerstone. Today, I'm joined by our student pastor, David Wilson, and our lead pastor, Bobby Harrell. And together, they do a wonderful job of bringing us fantastic content every Sunday morning in our sermon series. All of our content for our sermons are available on our website at cbc.family media. Our social media channels also have great video devotional content. And of course, this podcast that you're listening today, wouldn't it be possible if you guys didn't have an active stake in the conversation? We want you to join in the discussion with any questions, comments, or feedback that may come up as you listen and study on your own. If you have anything you'd like to contribute to the conversation, send us a text at 817-809-3040. We'd love to take the best and most relevant questions, compile them together, and really engage in a wonderful discussion as we go through the content of 1 Corinthians. So one thing that we've done and that we've been really purposeful with as we have done this study is we tried to really pull apart and show the importance of studying scripture paragraph by paragraph as opposed to verse by verse. We've mm-hmm. mentioned this several times in our podcasts over the past several weeks and really discussed how important it is to focus in on what the big idea of a paragraph is in scripture. And that's the lens through which you should interpret scripture. You know, so many times we take one verse that may feel troublesome or may be difficult to understand, hard to articulate. And we take that one difficult verse and that becomes the lens that we view the rest and entirety of scripture through. Whereas instead, if you understand scripture as a compilation of big ideas, then those big ideas are what you take to view the troublesome verses through. That becomes the binoculars that you're using. So David, let's start off. You know, we've been going through with big ideas of each paragraph. Mm -hmm. Now we're in chapter four of first right. Corinthians. I'd love it if maybe you could summarize what the big ideas of the first few chapters have been instead of just paragraphs. Now let's view it a little bit more broadly. Yeah. And again, that, that gives us a really good view then of the overall book. If we can get our minds off of verse specifically, then into paragraph and then even further into chapters that helps us have a greater understanding of the broader thing that whatever the writer, whoever the writer is, particularly here, Paul and first Corinthians, but whatever the writer is trying to do. So chapter one is all about how there are divisions in the church, but unity in the real wisdom of God is what's important. And that real wisdom is Christ and the gospel. Chapter two is what is a spiritual person? And Paul's ultimate answer is someone who has the mind of Christ. Chapter three is that the church all of the people in the church, not individuals particularly, that's not Paul's overall point for chapter three, the church, all of the people in the church, what makes up the church are to be servants of Christ built on the foundation of Jesus. And then finally, we've come to chapter four. And this, this one is a little bit of a a retelling, a restatement of all that he's done so far, but with a particular slant, he's saying that the Corinthians are Paul's spiritual children. So they need to follow his example as he follows Christ. Yeah. So chapter four actually opens with a question that one of our listeners sent in. So in the very first opening verse of the chapter, it says a person should think of us in this way as servants of God and managers of the mysteries of God. Mm -hmm. 
So the question that came in, it's actually a multi-part question, sure. and we'll get to the back end of this question a sure. little bit later. But the first part of this question asks, what made Paul such a good manager of the mysteries? So I guess we need to first redefine what mysteries are, what that's talking about, and sure. then talk about how Paul was especially qualified to manage these mysteries. Well, you've got, again, Paul turning their language back on them. Okay. So David just gave big ideas. So on the big ideas thing, let me just, just round that a little bit. Paul lays that like a foundation and right. it's not that he's going to say, so chapter one, you know, there's divisions in the church you yep. need to be unified around the, the wisdom of God, which is Jesus Christ and the gospel. Right. Okay. He's not going to run away from that. No. Theme now <laughs> he's laid that like a foundation. You're going to build a house on That's right. and he's going to keep building because understand again, this is not 16 chapters divided by verses. This exactly. is one single letter among, combined by ideas. And he, just like if we were having a conversation yeah. or a counseling session, sure. we may go several different ways, sure. but sure. you're here because there's a problem yeah. and we're going to keep circling back to that constantly. Right. And he does that. So yeah. that's one thing. Don't, don't think, okay, now we've moved on to a new chapter. You know, and we can put that to bed. We can't put that to bed right. because it's the foundation for they, they want to know what, you know, what does it mean to be a spiritual person? Yeah. We're not going to be done with that until mm -hmm. this whole letter is done. That's right. We're going to circle back to that multiple times, whether it's in the spiritual gifts chapter of 12 or whatever, you sure. keep coming back to how do you define what it means to be a spirit filled person? When Paul talks about the mysteries, this is putting their language back on them now because they wanted to be these super deep philosophical again this is the greco-roman sure. world that yeah, it reflects back on their current culture yeah i mean if you want to get a greco-roman world person fired up start talking about philosophy and sure. new philosophical ideas and mystery religions and deep hidden wisdom and truths this is their language yeah. and so now paul keeps saying that the real wisdom of god is the gospel Right. Yeah. The things you think are foolish are actually wise. Right. And the things you think are wise, i.e., again, this worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom, mm. philosophical wisdom, yeah. deep sophistry, whatever, sure. Gnosticism, mystery religion, angelic talk, whatever, is really just foolishness with God. Right. The real truth, the real depth is found in God's grace and God's love and God's sacrifice and the yeah. resurrection. And yeah. there's more to unpack in that than you could you could deal with in a lifetime. There's the real depths of the wisdom of God. So when he says, you know, we are managers of the mysteries, first of all, the mysteries, I think we probably just find that as the gospel, the gospel, you just write yep. that in your journal gospel yep. right there. We're managers of the gospel, but he uses the word mysteries. Yep. Why didn't he just say gospel? Sure. You have to ask yourself, why do you say it that way? Mm -hmm. he said it that way because that's their word. If I was counseling someone, they wanted to pastor, I want to pursue the mysteries and the depths and the, and the, well, you'd use their language in that sure. conversation. Paul's using that language to say, yeah, I am a manager of the real mysteries right. of God. It's which, almost like they want the gospel to be more complicated than it is. Yeah. Do you get that kind of understanding that yeah. Paul is giving the Corinthian church something that's really very simple and it's easy to articulate what the gospel yep. is yep. and they want it to be more than what it is. And so yep. they're turning it into this mystical moment where right. they can, you know, show off their spiritual prowess in comparison to all of their contemporary philosophers. I, I don't think it's unique to the Corinthians. Right. Exactly. I think it's also a Western world problem that we have as well, that we want it to be. Absolutely. It has to be Jesus plus we do this set of things or we because have to know these that things. That appeals to my yes. pride. That appeals right. to my intellect. That appeals to 
you know, here's what God brings to the table. Here's what I bring to the table. Right. Well, and, and even as we try to get people empowered to be able to share the gospel, they're firstly intimidated by not being able to because they've puffed up what the gospel is in their mind. And they say, sure. well, how could I possibly explain the gospel? Yeah, it's the super complicated it's thing. It's so complicated, whatever. but it's not. Yeah, it's it's actually not. very simple. And we see the same kind of tension when they're wanting spiritual meat. And Paul's saying, I gave you the milk of it, and that wasn't enough for you? Yeah, that yeah, that was even hard to digest for you guys. <laughs> right. And so there's just kind of this element of they want the gospel to be more complicated than it is. Sure. And Paul's, I think, so. I think, referring to that in him calling the gospel this mysterious moment because it's actually not mysterious at all. The NIV says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries of God has revealed. Yeah. Now it's required in those who have been given a trust, it must prove faithful. Paul saying, I've been given a message by God and a mission mm -hmm. by God, and I'm being a, a faithful, careful steward, minister, manager of yeah. that charge that was given me by God. So we should probably expect that Paul is not going to move off of this gospel message. Don't expect to turn to somewhere else in the New Testament and suddenly Paul is championing something other than the gospel. That's right. I don't think you're going to find that. And that's really what's being said. Here. Well, and you just kind of answered the question was what made Paul such a good manager of the mysteries of God? He answers it right away. He says, it's that we are faithful. That's right. And we see all throughout the book of Acts, I guess the first half of the book of Acts, we see maybe we could say the capital A apostles who are Jesus's closest followers being kind of the mainstay of the beginning of the book of Acts. But then towards the middle of the book of Acts, for whatever reason, probably because Paul's doing this wonderful pioneering work, sharing the gospel wherever he goes, the story transitions to him. And now he is an apostle. And maybe we should spend a moment yeah, I think defining we should. that. You, I'm you using that word here, but we yeah. should define this. Yeah, you mentioned capital A apostle as though there's a lowercase <laughs> sure, a apostle. Sure. Let, well, let's maybe how talk many kinds about, of apostles are there? <laughs> well, what exactly we're talking yeah. about here. Yeah, And that's because there are a lot of people in the New Testament called apostle other right. than those you would traditionally think of as apostles. Sure. And you have to reckon with that somehow. Yeah, And so the easiest way to discuss apostles is there are at least two usages of apostle right. in the New Testament. And so let's call one the capital A, a very proper office, mm -hmm. officially recognized office. And then there is a lowercase a apostle, which could be descriptive of a function of mm -hmm. how you do something. So right. let's, let's just see if we can take that apart real quick. So the capital A apostles, this is probably what most people would call the 12 apostles. Right. So Jesus has... We know the number of names in that first church registry mm -hmm. is 120 as the Gospels close and Acts opens. There are probably more followers of Christ than that, mm -hmm. but there is the first official group yeah. in, in Jerusalem, if you would. So let's just say there's more than 100 disciples of Christ. There mm -hmm. may have been many times that. Sure. And you have a moment where Jesus goes up into the mountain to pray. And he prays about his next step, which is going to be choosing mm -hmm. in the discipleship process, what we call that real core group, the small group, yeah. but he's going to call them apostles, going to, going right. to make an official office right here. And so he comes down and gathers his disciples and from them chooses 12 whom he called apostles. So the word apostle in both big A and little a just means sent ones. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you were a capital A you are granted with the title of apostle. You are one of the, I'm going to say one of the 12. But even as I say one of the 12, 
This is a bit of a misnomer because there were 12 chosen. Have I not chosen you 12, Jesus said, and one of you is a devil. Of course, Judas, who would betray him. Then in Acts chapter 1, they'll hold a special election Mm -hmm. where Peter oversees the election there and says, we need to choose one to replace Judas. And it looks like this is read several different ways, but I Mm -hmm. think one of the majority views on this is it looks like they're choosing someone with these qualifications. Peter says someone who was with us from the beginning, yeah. who, was, who saw the miracles, who, right. who walked with Christ, someone who's in this maybe 120 group, sure. somebody who's been here all along. We don't have to explain everything. They saw yeah. everything. Yeah. Someone who may have been there at the crucifixion, someone sure. who certainly saw the resurrected right. Christ, and they choose a replacement. Okay. So now you're, are you at 12 or 13? This right. is the question. <laughs> right. But here's the crazy thing, and we'll talk about that again in a minute. Paul, even in chapter 15, when we get there of 1 Corinthians, will talk about his, a little bit about his salvation, which he does again in the book of Acts. You hear him open his writings. Paul called to be an apostle right. by Jesus Christ. You know, he's, he's saying, I'm a big A right. apostle. I was called by God. And so the question becomes with Paul. How? Yeah, because <laughs> Paul didn't get saved for many years after Christ has already died, resurrected, and ascended yeah. up into heaven. And, and by your definition, he's not one of the immediate 12. So why is it that he gets... He, he didn't walk with Christ. Right, right. He was actually on the other team. Right. He'd be on the <laughs> be on the crucifying team, the Pharisee team. And well, Paul's experience is quite unique. And, and it's chronicled in the book of Acts where he says, you know, I'm essentially murdered Christians. Right. I, I was a persecutor of the Christian faith. It's my job to stamp out Christianity. Stoning of Stephen is very dramatically detailed mm-hmm. in the book of Acts. Paul is clearly the one sanctioning it, mm-hmm. overseeing it. You know, here's some nice rocks, gentlemen, if you'd like to pick them yeah. up and throw me. Let me hold your coat. I mean, let me hold your coat <laughs> while you roll up your sleeves. Yeah. Yeah. And I think from my impressions of what I read in the writings of Paul, that the stoning of Stephen affected him deeply. Mm-hmm. It was something that, in my imagination, haunted Paul. Yeah, because he was responsible. And the way Stephen died... God, lay not this sin to their charge. Smash, smash. The rocks are hitting him. Right. God, don't hold this against them. They're just ignorant. They don't get what's going on, you yeah. know. And I see heaven opened. Mm. I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. Right. And a minute he's going to be in heaven. You know, I mean, it's just a beautiful, dramatic, yeah. uh, tragic yeah. scene. And I think Paul probably saw Stephen in his dreams. Yeah. yeah. I see heaven open. Yeah. God, forgive them. It's a very... Christ-like moment when he's on the cross and he says, you know, Father, they you know, they know yeah, not what they do. Exactly. They, they don't get the big picture of what's really happening here. Paul's eyes were opened. Let's talk about how that happened. So he later is on the road to Damascus. He's traveling with arrest warrants is what we would call them in his pocket, mm-hmm. ready to go arrest some Christians and round them up and, and kill them. And as he's traveling down the highway, he is knocked from his horse flat in the middle of the highway traffic, you know, backs up for miles on I-35, you know, and as he's laying in the road, bright light shines around him and God begins to speak. It's, uh, it's hard to kick against the guiding of God. Uh, you know, the, sure. the, you're fighting against me and you're going to find this is not your normal fight, Paul. Mm-hmm. And he's really called Saul of Tarsus in that moment. Sure. Paul's laying in the street, blinded by the light and saying, who are you? And the voice, the person says, I am Jesus. Yeah. Nice to meet you. You've been telling everybody it's a hoax. It's a lie. It didn't rise from the dead. Disciples stole the body, blah, 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 blah. Right. Good to meet you, sir. Yeah. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
and which is also tells us a lot too, because Paul was persecuting Christians. Let me say it another way. Paul was persecuting the church of Jesus. When Jesus translated that, he said, no, you're fighting me. If you're yeah. fighting my people and you're fighting my church, yeah, me. you're attacking me. Yeah. And you and I are going to have a confrontation today, right here in the middle of the highway. And of course, uh, that leads to Paul's conversion. You know, Lord, what would you have me to do? Go into the city and I'll have a pastor come and talk to sure. you and, you know, all of this. So his conversion experience is chronicled. And Paul calls himself, as we'll see later, as one born out of due season. Right. Yeah. I came along later yeah. than the other apostles. And again, if, if there is some requirement to have encountered the resurrected Christ, to have a face-to-face with Jesus. Right. And let's talk about why that might be important because they are sent ones. And in Matthew 28, as the gospels close, let's say that Jesus appears to all of his disciples, pulls them all together. Apostles Mm -hmm. are there. Here's my marching orders. In case you forgot, go Mm -hmm. and make disciples of all nations. Yeah. Go. You are sent ones. You're apostles. Okay. Acts one, when Jesus is about to send up to, to heaven from Mount of Olives, calls them all together. And he says, all right, let's cover it one more time. You shall be witnesses to me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of go implied in that. We're going to move around. Remember, your mission is to go make disciples, spread the gospel, lead people to Christ, disciple them to maturity, get this reproduction model going, forge them into churches. This is the mission of apostles. You are people who are going. And we know they did because as we've been in India, you'll encounter Thomas's grave there in South India. We know that they went to North Africa. We know that they went to Greece and and Rome and into Europe. They They went went. all over the world sharing the gospel. That lesson they learned very well. Yeah, they were commissioned to be ambassadors of the gospel. That is correct. And you can imagine when, let's just keep on that capital A apostle. Yeah. When Paul, who was converted much later, from kind of radical Judaism, a terrorist against Christianity to pastor or to Christian. You can imagine the, the reticence of the original apostles to receive him into their circle. I mean, you can only imagine. Yeah. This is, this is your sworn enemy. It's like a group of Navy SEALs welcoming Osama to the table for a cup of coffee. Yeah. I mean, this is like enemies, two sides of an issue now all gloriously saved coming together. And they were, I think, very, very reluctant. And the scripture bears that out, that ultimately Paul goes back to Tarsus, not really, he did go to Jerusalem to meet, the Bible says, you know, James, the Lord's brother mm-hmm. and Peter and compare notes, you know, a little bit about. Yes. And, and the apostles confirmed, the originals yeah. believe he was born again. He can talk the talk. We believe he has the spirit, but we're just eh, we're leery of this guy a little bit. You know, it's sure. it's hard to overcome that. Yeah. He killed. Yeah, he fr- killed friends. our friends and family. Yeah. You know, and that would be a very, very hard thing. So Paul goes back up towards Turkey to his hometown. And as revival is breaking out in Antioch, Barnabas is sent to Antioch by the Jerusalem team, mm-hmm. Peter, James, etc., to go up to Antioch and try to discern what, what the church is. Is it a legitimate church? I mean, their, their music is different. Their style is different. They, <laughs> yeah. It's a multi, it's a mixed congregation. Right. They're not all Jews, whatever. And it's the first time this has really happened in history. Yeah. And so the Jerusalem, the mother church is saying something big appears to be happening down there, but we didn't sanction it and we didn't approve it. 
as if they needed to sanction approve it. Right. Uh, God, God was at work, but they didn't know how to sort all this out in sure. those early days of church expansion. Well, Barnabas, they sent Barnabas up there to check out the church and give a report. Barnabas realized that the one thing the church in Antioch needed was another gifted teacher. Mm -hmm. They end up with four pastors, but it's Barnabas that goes and fetches Paul, brings him down to Antioch and says, we're going to stall you as one of the speaking pastors Mm -hmm. here. And from there, Paul's, if you want to call it career ministry as an apostle really blows up from there. And he, the mission trips go out of that church. Europe is evangelized out of that church. Yeah. It's really that church that all of us could somewhat trace our roots back to as, you know, European expansionism or mission sure. expansions out, yeah. of, out of that church or the Jerusalem church. So eventually they realize Paul is the real deal yeah. and he's on our team and we're all one team. Well, and they believe him when he talks about like in Galatians about this moment where you were referring to right before he goes and meets the apostles in Jerusalem. He has what a three-year experience where he's out in the Arabian wilderness or the desert or whatever, and he's in. There appears to be some specific and special revelation that's occurring to him and Jesus. So Jesus is personally meeting with him in some way, whether it's through a vision or whatever. We 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 can't know specifically, but Jesus is communicating all of these again these mysteries, this gospel message, this Mm -hmm. whole plan of salvation from the beginning, probably walking Paul through the prophets and the Old Testament in order to get Paul to where he needs to be to understand what Jesus is all about. And so then when he shows up there in Jerusalem, he gives a very accurate and a very right on the line with what Peter, James and John and all those guys believed account of what the gospel is so yeah they're wary but also they're convinced enough that well, this guy's yeah he's able to give them not proof a threat at this somehow point of his <laughs> apostolic qualifications yeah, that's right and, and there it is and there's where his his capital a qualifications would probably come from is that he did experience something personally with the person of jesus yeah. the yeah. opening two chapters of galatians you'll hear paul talk about the revelation of that's christ right. that's right it, it's it's alluded to in the scripture but it's never really Mm. You, you, it's not like there's whole paragraphs. Yeah, it's not and, explained in detail. No, no, but what Paul says is after he got saved, he went out into the, it appears, the wilderness of Arabia. And it, again, it harkens back to a very Moses. Sure. 40 years in the wilderness, yeah. you know, around Mount Sinai and God appearing to him and calling him and the burning bush scene and all of this. It harkens back to old prophets like Elijah yep. who fled for his life and, and in depression, really. Yep. And went down to the Arabian Peninsula, Mount Sinai. God appears to him, you know, and kind of recommissions him and says, oh, no, you've got disciples to make. Why don't you go call Elisha? And you've got a lot to do. You know, you can't. This is not the end of ministry. This That's is right. a chapter of ministry. <laughs> yeah. And so really for Paul, <laughs> yeah. Arabia, yes. meeting with God in the wilderness. Somehow we believe from the best we can interpret here. Right. That Christ appeared to him. And again, a, Personally Mo- revealed himself. a Moses, Elijah yeah, type moment. Sure where God revealed himself to Paul and said, I want to talk to you about some things. And Paul would often say, like in Galatians, you're referring to God gave me these revelations. He showed me some things that he didn't show the original 12, you know, how the Jew and Gentile be, you know, forged together in the body of Christ and things like this, where he's able to expound upon some of the teaching of Christ beyond even maybe what the first 12 original or 13 apostles had. And he, unlike the original 12, was trained to be a rabbi. These other guys are just fishermen and whatever else. Their their training was not like Paul's. And so Paul has a unique 
ability, a unique training that sets him up to accept these truths from Jesus, maybe in a different way or in an intellectual way that he can then translate to the rest of the body of Christ. Right. Well, this is still very evident in the fact that the New Testament is predominantly written by Paul. That's right. Because he has a certain ability to be able to take his vantage point and his Mm -hmm. background and his revelation from Christ in conjunction with the experiences of the other apostles and to be able to put it into a format where he's able to speak into churches. So let's talk about little a apostle. Yeah, because you mentioned a minute ago, Barnabas and Barnabas in Acts chapter 14 is listed right alongside Paul as being an apostle. And there are others. And there are others we know of Junia, who is Romans chapter 16. Exactly. And she, she's not just called an apostle, but she's called awesome well, among yeah, the apostles. Well esteemed among the apostles. Highly regarded right? among yeah. the apostles. She's, she's crushing it for Jesus is what basically Paul say. And he's like, she's my fellow kinsman. Yeah. She was in Christ. She was a Christian before I was. Yeah. These are people who were imprisoned, people mm-hmm. who've risked their lives for the gospel. When Paul's using language like fellow worker, right. co-laborer, and again, this may lead to an Apollos discussion here in a minute, Sure, but when Paul uses this, you know, to say, to say, you two men are my co-laborers, mm-hmm. you're my fellow laborers, what that language implies is you do what I do. Right. What yeah. we, we all do the same thing. Right. I don't lead worship. Praise God, you wouldn't want to hear that. <laughs> but, you know, what's the same thing we do? We all proclaim the gospel. Right. Yeah. We all lead the church family. We all make disciples. We all shepherd God's people, guide the church. We're fellow laborers. Right. So when Paul starts using language like these are my fellow laborers, these are my co-workers, and he does that a lot. Mm-hmm. Now you could probably overlay a little lay apostle sure. right there. So let's talk about it. So sent ones, mm-hmm. whether it's the big A or the little A, the word means the yeah. sent ones. Specifically with a message. Oh, That's right. Sent with the gospel. That's yeah. right. Sent to make disciples right. into all the places of the world. So today we have a little phenomenon. We, we made it a little confusing. Mm-hmm. For example, when you talk about missions or missionaries, sure, it's not really a word that's used in the Bible like, like we're using it so often in our church context. You know, Paul's first missionary journey, Paul's second missionary journey, Paul's third missionary journey. It's almost better to say his first apostolic journey. <laughs> yeah, his per- yeah, exactly. His second apostolic, apostolic journey. tour, yeah. you know, <laughs> right? the Grecian tour the, or whatever, right, you know what I'm right. saying? He wanted to go on the Spain tour. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we call that missions or being a missionary. Well, Paul was never called a missionary. He was an apostle. Mm-hmm. And all of the people traveling with him are called, if you will, apostles with a little a. You know, sure. So you could equate, it wouldn't be inappropriate to equate what we call being a missionary or going on a missions trip. You're a sent one. You're going somewhere to share a message, to share a message. And that message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're going to make disciples and you're hoping a church is going to spring out of that, that can carry on that work of God. Right. Uh, Missions work is apostle work. Right. That's really what we're talking about. Yeah. And so in our own church context, uh, well, let me, before I leave that, just as you read through the Bible now, don't be shocked sure. that there are many people beyond the 12 or the 13 yeah. right. that, that are going to be called apostles. Right. And that should not raise your eyebrow at all. No. These are in the first century people being sent to do ministry work, share right. the gospel, make disciples. That is missions work. So, and maybe that's why the word that maybe that's why we adopted the word missionary instead of apostle, because we didn't want to confuse anybody. Cause I think there is a, a segment of Christianity that might think that 
we're a part of the apost like the capital a apostolic yeah. strain of leaders or whatever well, and now see, i'm the next apostle you'll see or people advertise themselves right. people that are trying to get a following today yeah you know come to our crusade signs miracles wonders healings with the apostle so, so and so and so, so sure. and so yeah and that's he's claiming quite a big yeah if you use that definition sure. i'm gonna say you always have to interpret it that way but yeah. So you've seen the risen Christ that, I mean, you, so right. you were there, you know, you must be what, 2000 years old. I mean, wow. <laughs> you know, anyway, yeah. uh, it's, it's like a, it's really saying, see, I'm all that. Hmm. See, I'm spiritually elite. Right. I'm on the level. You, you better have some pretty big britches to claim you're on the <laughs> sure. level with the apostle right. Paul <laughs> right. and Peter. That's a pretty big shoes to fill right well, there. And in that vein, we were, we, as we were discussing this question a little bit, you know, what, what makes Paul a great manager of the mystery? His whole life was formatted around the gospel, was lived for the mission of the gospel. He never veers off course from that conviction to share the gospel wherever he goes. And he's, he's true to Christ until his martyrdom, what, 62, 63 AD in Rome. And as he's nearing the end of his life, he knows it's, it's probably coming. I mean, he's hoping it's not, but he kind of knows. And he's writing letters from his imprisonment. He sends a letter to Timothy, one of his disciples. And in first Timothy chapter four, verses six through eight, he says something that if you kind of know that context is really a great round, uh, you know, a round off or a, a great summation of his, of his ministry. This is what he says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul isn't boasting, but he's just saying, you know, very clearly, this is what I have done. Let the record show. Let the record show. He's been faithful as That's a right. delegate and commissioned ambassador of the That's gospel. Right. And he's been faithful to that. I love this imagery of him talking to Timothy. It very much mimics the way that Jesus spoke in his prayer in yeah. the garden to his relationship with his disciples. That's right. He said, I've finished the work that I've been mm -hmm. sent here to do. He had made disciples and he felt confident that the gospel would be perpetuated throughout yeah. the entirety of the world because of the work that he had accomplished with his disciples. And this is very much the heart that Paul is now describing to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, I have raised you up as a child of the faith. Mm -hmm. I have spiritually parented you. Yeah. And I'm confident that even when my days are done, which seems to be very imminent now, sure. that the gospel will continue to be... Yeah, go forward. Go forward. Yeah. Because of the work that he's accomplished through Timothy. Yeah. So let me round back again then. So are the days of apostolic work over? Huh. Is there still the work of an apostle to be done? Sent one. Sure. In their context, they were sent into very difficult, extreme pagan situations where maybe it was very dangerous to be a Christian and what we call pioneering work. Right. You're starting right. with no Christians and no understanding of the gospel. And you're going to have to start from scratch and make disciples. And I think that work still goes on. Absolutely. And I don't know that God's calling any more capital A apostles, exactly. but he's called, I think all of us, for those who are listening to that are, you know, our covenant members at Cornerstone, you might be interested to know that as a part of the rework we did last year on the governing documents, mm -hmm. one of the layers we added into the accountability was to build an advisory council. And really what that is to Cornerstone is it's asking some faithful, tenured, 
trustworthy, uh, trustworthy pastors, uh, past, you know, ministry voices to speak back into our church like an apostle. So this go, we haven't really talked about this. One of the aspects of being an apostle was to speak into churches. Right. Well, you see this as directly as first Corinthians. Paul has established this church. Yep. Apollos is now pastoring this church. Paul sees that there's still moments of correction and encouragement that need to happen. And so he's continuing his relationship, mm-hmm. speaking truth into the congregation yeah. there. This is true of the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi. He, That's why we he have can, all these books. Exactly. He continues his ministry of speaking into the churches as someone a step removed who can view from a different vantage point and have good perspective on the things that need to be adapted, changed, mm-hmm. or modified yeah. for the purpose of advancing the gospel. Right. If Corinth is left to her own devices as mm-hmm. a church, you've just got your toe in the water right <laughs> sure. now in four sure. chapters, and what's coming will curl your hair. Right. And left to her own devices, you come away with the conclusion, I think universally, this church is going to implode. It's going to self-destruct. And this is really one of Paul's big issues is, they're at a crisis of leadership. Mm-hmm. They're at a crisis of which voices they're going to listen to. They're at a crisis of, will they adhere to my gospel that I have delivered them, which yeah. is the true gospel, or will they chase something else? And if they do, it will mean they're destroyed. Listen, if you, if you mess with the temple of God in the way you got, it, God will destroy this. And so one of the things that, you know, just a reading of that tells us is isolation is bad. Yeah. And it's bad for individuals. Mm-hmm. Listen, you get isolated from your church family. This is one of the huge dangers coming off this last year. Yeah. Some of the stats we've read is, you know, one in five churches have closed their doors forever. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about that, it's, oh, okay. Let me put it in a different way. There, there are thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of believers who, because of now a year of not worshiping together, not being accountable in community, have fallen away from the faith. Yeah. And that's scary. That's devastating. That's devastating to the, to the body of Christ. You bet it is. Isolation is harmful. It hurts us in our daily walk. I've preached whole sermons on this about using how the pioneers who went West lived with just them and their families. Yeah. When you see some of the photographs of those people who've lived out there alone for years they have this really strange look in their eye. And 35 children. Uh, yeah, it's really bizarre. <laughs> yeah. And because the isolation really messes with you. Yeah. You know, in spiritual terms, yeah. what we're talking about, you know, a church left to isolation will become to think it's the only one that has the truth. Right. There are nobody else out there like us. Yeah. And you start developing thoughts and ideas as a church that just aren't not based in reality. Right. And so this is important, why it's important to have other mm-hmm. pastors. Sure voices acting in the role of an apostle, even if there aren't capital A apostles anymore, let's just say there's not for argument's sake, we would like some small A apostles, some trusted voices speaking into our church to say, Hey, I see y'all might have a blind spot here or, Hey, why do y'all do it that way? Yeah. Either let me correct you or let me learn from you. This is something that's very different and antithetical even to the background that all of us came from where individual local churches valued their autonomy probably as a extreme reaction to a Catholic structure, sure. a papal structure, sure. right? And so we valued our independence and our autonomy so much mm-hmm. that churches began to uh, completely isolate yeah. themselves. And we saw any kind of overseeing structure as being problematic. But that's exactly the kind of structure that Paul is modeling here in his letter to, sure. to the Corinth church. 
the Baptists certainly have championed autonomy of the church. Yeah. This is the yeah. kind of technical term you're talking about, autonomy of the church. <laughs> and maybe most evangelicals would hold to the autonomy of the church. What you want to be careful of is there's a difference between being autonomous, which means self self-governing, yeah. self-governing and isolationist. Right. And I, I believe in the autonomy of the church sure. because when you start talking about, you know, need other voices, the extreme of that would be, well, you're going to build more of like a Catholic structure mm-hmm. where the church can't make any decision without calling the mothership to ask permission. And as you read what Paul's writing, clearly that's not what he's saying. He's actually saying the other, what? Can't you guys make some judgments down there at Corinth? Right. You're going to judge angels for Pete's sake. Can't you, you know, decide what color to paint the walls without splitting the church over that? Surely you could exercise your judgment. Sure. So it's not about that. But what it's about is wherever, just use two examples because they pop right to mind, Pentecostals and Baptists are notorious for having either financial or sexual scandal at the highest levels. Mm. And, you know, even recently in news, one of the prominent apologists yeah. that has traveled the world and written mm-hmm. scores of books and, you know, who is so highly regarded now you realize at the end of his career, he's been involved in all kinds of scandal, misconduct. Yeah. That misconduct happens in structures where there is no accountability. Yep. And so we believe that we need to find ways to add layers of accountability. So like for us, our advisory council meets with our board of elders, and we've written that in that that needs to happen annually, or at least every other year, there needs to be a face-to-face meeting mm-hmm. with outside voices. So if you ever hear, hey, the elders are offsite meeting with the advisory count, this is what's happening. Yeah. There is a face-to-face with apostolic type voices saying to our leadership team here at Cornerstone, is everybody healthy? Mm. What issues are you dealing with? Do you need outside voices to speak to this? Do you want our biblical opinions on maybe something you're dealing with? Uh, yeah. Is your own staff healthy? All of these wonderful kinds of conversations are mm. happening and it helps even me and you guys who are at the leadership level of ministry here, not only be accountable to our elders, but also we've willingly made ourselves accountable to some outside pastors and told them, if you see us start going outside of our lane somehow, Mm -hmm. if you see us crossing some boundaries that make you uncomfortable as a Christian leader, we want you to pick the phone up or come and see, or let's call a meeting and you tell us you think we're out of line and we're going to hear what you have to say. Mm-hmm. And we, we relish that type of accountability. Absolutely. Yeah. So the rest of this question asking about how Paul was such a good manager of the gospel or of the mysteries of God, the question actually continues and it's in reference to verse three. So let me read verse three first and then we'll finish the question. It says, it is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not conscious of anything against myself. But I'm not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So the remainder of the question that was sent in by one of our listeners asked, why was Paul not conscious of anything against himself, and why is he not justified by this? So the beginning of chapter 4, which is what's happening here, is verses 1 through 5, is really the, the paragraph. But the beginning of chapter 4 here, Paul is now shifting the metaphor from chapter three, which talked about a field and a building and a temple. And now he's shifting it into a a household. And so again, you have to contextually understand what Paul's talking about in Greco-Roman world. There would have been, if you know, it's a nice household, there's 
going to be servants within that household. And now Paul is self-identifying he and the other apostles. He's putting them all together. And actually, I think he's bringing Apollos into that same kind of conversation because that's what we've been talking about for the first three chapters so far. So he's saying that we're servants in this house of God, if you would. And his argument is that though I belong to the church, you Corinthians, as your servant, I'm not accountable to you because ultimately me, Paul, and you, the Corinthians, are all accountable to God. Because what he finishes with in verse 5 is, so don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes, who will both bring to light what is hidden in darkness and reveal the intentions of the hearts, and then praise will come to each one from God. So Paul's real point is that everybody is ultimately accountable to God. And actually, this is really Pauline language. Romans chapter 14, verse 4, Paul brings this up to them as well. He says, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and mm. they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. So it's a little bit confusing, but what he's really trying to say is I, I'm not, I don't have anything in, in my mind right now about something that I've done that makes my conscience cloudy or whatever, but I'm not justified that alone because my conscience doesn't justify me. Yeah. Ultimately, God justifies me. Ultimately, God justifies you guys. But I think he's also subtly saying your immaturity, your level of immaturity, and all these examples I've just displayed to you guys, the divisions that you're making, all the problems you're, you're in the church. It's judged by your own behavior. Yes. You guys don't really, you don't really have the right to even assess me where you're sitting right now. You right. guys don't even have the gospel right. And we have to spend four chapters talking about the very simplest part of our faith and the deepest part of our faith in order for us to even get to these other issues. So he's not saying that you can't judge me and I stand above all earthly judgments or whatever like that, which I think is how people have taken this verse to be in the past. People have ripped this out of context and said, well, you can't see this is what Paul's saying. This is true for my life too. You cannot judge me at all. That's exactly the opposite of what Paul's saying. Mm -hmm. He's saying, ultimately, God is the one who judges. Yeah. And, and you know that because he calls himself a servant of Christ. That's right. And as a servant, he is subject only to his master. Those are themes That'll, it'll just keep coming up again. Right. These themes of I'm a servant and this theme of I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. And Paul is saying, no, we are not masters. Right. You misunderstand what church leadership is. Your church yeah. leaders are not masters to whom you may belong. Right. We are servants. Right. And we all belong to God. Yes. And this statement of all things are Christ. So therefore yep. all things are yours. But we all belong to God. You know, neither is man, neither is woman, but all things are God. You're going to hear in chapter yeah, 11, all over. this, it just keeps cycling around. We all belong to God and ultimately he is the judge mm -hmm. to whom we will give account of everything. And, you know, my conscience is clear, Yeah. but you know, I still have to give account to God That's, that's right. and there may be some things he wants to talk to me about. Right. David called some, some sins, sins of omission. Maybe I should have done some things and I didn't do them. You know, but that's, right. that's okay. I'll settle, you know, right. with God right now, as you articulated, let's, let's drop the whole judgment thing. Because the real <laughs> issue is that yeah. these spiritual infants yeah. involved in all kinds of immoral behavior are basically saying to the apostle Paul, we don't think you're a man of the spirit, right? Mm -hmm. We don't think you're a spiritual person. Yeah. They're judging his spiritual condition. Which is way out of bounds. It's, it's a different thing than judging someone's behavior. Sure. If, if you behave in an immoral way and it's known to everyone and you actually are bragging and flaunting it, 
it's not in question. That, that's a definable <laughs> it's moment. It's a definable moment. Yeah. And, and you can judge that behavior. Yeah. It's like motives. Right. Motives are, in, you're not allowed to judge. You just can't. There's yeah. no way to judge someone's motives. And to stand in judgment of Paul's spirituality when he's done nothing behaviorally. Sure. For you to call him a spiritual infant, you just have some arbitrary, bizarre standard by, you know, He's not as good a speaker or you don't like, he's only exactly. like five, seven, maybe, or his <laughs> nose is too big or sure. his breath is not fresh. Or, I mean, yeah. what, what, by what standard are you saying he's not a spiritual man? And he's like, my, my conscience is clear. No, mm-hmm. I'm good. Yeah. Uh, I'm okay. And I'll give account to God. And if there's anything, trust me, trust me, God will settle all accounts, <laughs> yeah. you know? So don't judge right. another person's servant. Right. Yeah. So there's something else that is brought up for the first time in the book. Mm-hmm. That's in verse nine, and this kind of sets up a thematic element to the rest of the letter that we're going to touch on more in future mm-hmm. chapters. Mm-hmm. But I want to point it out now because it is integral to understanding where the Corinthians are coming from, and also understanding a problem that Paul is trying to correct. So in First Corinthians chapter four, verse nine, Paul says, "I think God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place, like men condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels." And to people. The reason why I bring this up is now we're setting up this understanding of angels being a part of the conversation. And this is not something that normally Paul talks about. This is not normally a a rabbit trail that he goes on, but we see it several times in this book. In chapter six, he says, Don't you know you're going to judge angels? In chapter 11, he says, You should have authority over your head because of the angels. In chapter 13, he says, I could speak in even angelic languages, and it doesn't matter if I don't have love. And so there's this now recurring theme that we first see pop up in chapter four of angels being a part of the discussion. I'd love to get your opinions, some feedback on why angels are suddenly being mentioned. He Again, he's using their language. If we had the zero Corinthians letters, which we don't have, the exchanges back and forth that had occurred multiple times. I feel confident that you would see in the letters the Corinthians wrote to Paul language about, well, when, when God's church meets, the angels are here present with us looking on. And when we speak in tongues, we speak in the language of angels and see, here's how spiritual we are. Right. Yeah. We're way beyond you, Paul. And angels this and angels that, and the angels are present. And again, because they, you have to understand this Greco-Roman sure. roots they want to appeal to the the hidden yeah, mystery, the the, mystery. the deep wisdom, yeah, the, the mysticism yeah, of, the mysticism. of the culture. Uh, yeah. The ancient religions, especially of Babylon and Egypt and like, were called mystery religions. Mm-hmm. The priesthood of those mystery religions was like a secret society. I mean, a it's a little elite group of spiritualists who ran those mystery religions and. They knew things that you weren't allowed to know yeah. about the universe and the world and God and angels and, and what made the world work, you know. And a lot of that is carried over into the Greco-Roman idolatry. Gnosticism springs out right. in some of these New Testament writings now. We see it uh, combating Christianity or syncretism, the idea sure. of merging paganism and Christianity, which mm-hmm. is really a Corinthian issue. Mm-hmm. They clearly are doing that. Or Maybe in John's writings where some of the churches in Asia Minor are practicing a syncretism of merging Gnosticism back with Christianity. And it's this idea of to do that, it would play out like this. We'll see we Christians are a little 
secret society, your little elite group of spiritualists. Mm -hmm. And now that we've received Christ, we, we are, uh, the angels uh, uh, attend us with power and heavenly ability. And uh, we have ascended to a super spiritual state and we're allowed to engage in all kinds of physical immorality or whatever. None of that matters because of our connection to the spirit world. What's done in the body doesn't matter. And so it's these bizarre, this bizarre ideology that mm-hmm. these churches had merged the so paganism back into Christianity. And that's right. always going to be a big no-no with the Bible writers because it's a big no-no with God. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not the gospel plus again. Yeah. something and so it's right. just the gospel right and something that is going to come up every time that angels are mentioned in first corinthians is it always has to do with the hierarchical placement of angels versus people yeah. Yeah. so in chapter four he's talking about how he puts himself in last place right because the angels and people are both looking at them as spectacles in chapter six he talks about how there's an ultimate judgment over angels that you are ultimately more discerning over them in chapter 11, again, it's the, this discussion of authority because of angels. In chapter 13, it's talking about the loftiness of angelic language. So whatever the content was of Zero Corinthians, where they brought up angels as part of the conversation, we have to understand that it had to do with, again, the hierarchical placement of themselves versus right. angels. And you have to assume that whatever they were doing had to mimic culture in a way that Paul sure. is now speaking against. Well, and I should point out, and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves as far as the chapters go, but I should point out that every time that the angels talk shows up, whether it's in chapter six, 11, 13, or four, it's never consequential to doctrine. Yeah. There's no consequential yeah. thing that Paul is saying there. And Paul is always being ironic or hyperbolic or sarcastic in every yeah. one of those instances. If you took angels out of those passages, it doesn't the passage could still stand. Like the passage you just you just read, Jeremy. You know he's talking about uh, we as the apostles are are put on display, mm-hmm. like in the arena. We're being we're being killed for our faith. We're the scum of the earth. We become yeah. a display to right. He says men and angels, but he could have just said we become a display to the whole universe, yeah, right, the whole world. But instead, he's bringing up he's angels on purpose, which almost feels like a departure yeah. from the point. So right. he's either using that, as you said, a jab or a device yes. to correct their thinking. That's right. On what the role of angels is right now. Yeah. There's a thing that we talk about a lot as a staff. And so we'll have to explain this to the listeners. It's a theological term called overrealized eschatology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's say if we can talk about what an overrealized eschatology is. Eschatology is last things That's right the end state of things yeah. last days final state For sure so eschatology just means the end mm-hmm. yeah and so an overrealized eschatology would be to live now mm-hmm. as if the final thing is real the final thing had already happened That's right and so we do not yet have a resurrection body the kingdom of god does not yet permeate the whole world yeah you know, it's growing. Yep. It's in inaugural phase yeah. since the days of Jesus. But we do not rule and reign as kings. And we are not <laughs> back in Genesis chapter two. Yeah. But we know that is our destiny. Yeah. To be like him, to be in a glorified, resurrected mm-hmm. body. The earth does not yet have its resurrection where the lion and the lamb lay down together. Yeah. That is the end times. That is what it, where, where we're heading. Yes. 
is a restored yeah, heaven Eden. and earth. It's a restored yeah. heaven and earth. And we're not there yet. But sometimes people get ahead of themselves yes. in theology and they say, well, see, you know, the scripture says right now, one interpretation is you're made a little lower than the angels as a human. Yeah. Well, I mean, one angel comes through the Assyrian camp, kills 185,000 men in one night. Whoever that dude is, you don't want to mess with him. You know, I mean, that's a serious angel. And it appears that right now, my, my interpretation of scripture is they are much more powerful than we are. Yeah. But it appears that the end state of things is that we will be like Christ, mm -hmm. which means the order of the universe gets flipped at some point. Right. And this is the danger of having an over-realized eschatology believing that it's already been realized, meaning that the kingdom is right now. It's all happened. There is no resurrection because we are here in it. And that is, that is a part of what Paul actually wants to address later on in the book. But having that over-realized eschatology puts you in a weird place again to talk about random stuff like the angels as if you are already reigning on as par kings. and reigning as kings That's as Paul, in chapter four. Chapter I mean, four. it's exactly it. Yeah, you're already reigning as kings. Yeah, Man, wanna... <laughs> I wish I could reign with you, Paul exactly. says. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. When did this, when did the resurrection happen? <laughs> you know, did I miss it somehow? Yeah. And so there is this language being used. Yeah. That's the big point. So when yeah. you see angels, Paul's not making a, he's not writing a paper now on angels yeah. where he's going to define the function and relation, our relationship to them and the function of angels as ministering spirits. Those should be heirs of salvation. That's not going to show up in this book. Just a few pointed references references yeah. to the angels which must be it must be in reference to things they had already exchanged yeah. in in writing where they had an overrealized eschatology or they misunderstood the nature of their relationship to the angels or misunderstood the angels functions and assignments from God almighty and they kept throwing this angelic talk out there. Yeah. So Paul now is just kind of backing them down with this. Sure. I do not reign as a king. As a matter of fact, the apostles are like those led to the arena at That's the right. end of the procession yeah. to be martyred in front of everyone. We are the garbage of the, of the world. Mm -hmm. That's the way we are treated. We are in a spectacle to men mm -hmm. and to angels. You know, the whole universe is watching us be martyred for the gospel's sake. That's, right. That's what it's like to be a spiritual person in this Roman empire. Yeah. 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 So there's one other thing at the end of the chapter, Paul starts talking in terms that may sound very familiar, especially to our culture at Cornerstone. You know, when we talk about discipleship and we start articulating what the phases of spiritual maturity look like, we try to do it in ways that parallel physical growth. So you take the life cycle of a person, you start out as pre-birth, you're not, you're just a thought. Right. And then you are born into life as a an infant, as a baby. You grow up into childhood where you're very, you know, self-focused. You know, you're looking at your own desires and needs above the needs of others. Eventually, you switch into young adulthood where other people become a reality and you start seeing people, you start being empowered and impassioned with maybe serving and helping other people. That all then culminates in parenthood, where then you replicate yourself with creating children, you procreate, mm -hmm. and eventually those children then make children and you become right. a grandparent in the That's process. Right. And so we, we like to parallel 
physical yeah. growth with spiritual growth. Did you just make all of that up though? It's, I mean, not, yeah. it's not made up. So all of this is spiritually founded. <laughs> and actually you can see all of this really nicely articulated. You can see every single stage in the way that Paul talks to the church in Corinth. Mm-hmm. So here in chapter four, starting in verse 14, it says this, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as what? My dear, dear children, children. Yeah. for you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. Mm-hmm. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So again, you have the pre-gospel Corinthians who are potentially headed towards life. They are given the gospel and now they are infants in Christ. Paul feeds them the milk that we talked about in previous chapters, and now they are his children as he parents them spiritually. Mm. You also have the example of Timothy, who has been trained by Paul to then go out and make his own disciples and to Mm -hmm. parent other people. He's currently in the young adult phase, and he's being commissioned out to be a parent of the gospel to the Corinthian church. So you've got Paul acting as grandparent to Timothy, who is coming out of young adulthood into parenthood dealing with the children and infants of the church here. And so it's just a wonderful parallel of the entire discipleship model as we talk about the wheel of development, which is a a term that's very familiar to our people here at Cornerstone, as we imagine going through the stages and phases of development and spiritual maturity and growth, you see every single phase here represented by the way that Paul interacts with his people. There's some very interesting language in the verse you just read that maybe we we ought to call out too, you know, from CSB, how many how many instructors? Countless, countless instructors. Is the way it works. Yeah. Countless. I've got the NIV open in front of me. It says this: Even if you had ten thousand guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. And the guardian is that head steward, head sure. servant, yeah. a tutor, au pair, a head butler, An instructor, yeah. someone who oversees the children in the home. Mm-hmm. But the language here is, though you had 10,000. Yeah, and so if you look it up in the Greek, the language is actually very specific. It does specifically say 10,000. However, that's <laughs> you know on par with saying a gajillion, yeah. right? It's this idea that you know it doesn't even matter how many. It's so many. It's right. countless. Yeah. You can't even imagine the number. You know, it's, Paul didn't literally mean 10,000. That you have to have 10,000 instructors in Christ to reach spiritual maturity. Right. Otherwise, okay, so now you have Paul and Apollos and Timothy. So now you need 9,000, 997 more, more yeah. instructors, and you'll probably get to maturity. Yeah. So just, uh, you know, hop around or get resumes or bring leaders through there. And when yeah. you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, you know, you'll, again, this is that flourish of language that Paul is using. <laughs> yeah. he, he, like we would in Texas, we do this sure. constantly. You know, it's like a bazillion degrees outside right now, you yeah. know, or the cars on the freeway. There was a gajillion cars. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't find a parking space anywhere. Right. We use this type of amplified sure. extreme language all the time to make a point. Right. Yeah. There weren't literally a gazillion, nor did I count them. Did One, I count. two, exactly. three, four, <laughs> every parking space, just so I could give an accurate report. Right. Yeah. Using this extreme flourish of language to make my point, you're going to have a lot of people who can speak into your life and, and mm-hmm. teach you, learn from everyone you can learn from. How about right, that? Right. But 
You only have one father in Christ. Remember who brought you the gospel. And I brought you the gospel Remember and you were born again. You there to you go. spiritual maturity. And there should always be a special. Yes. I say this all the time because we have tried to reform Cornerstone. Yeah. We have tried to help our Baptist friends reform many things that needed to be reformed, both doctrinally and in practice in our churches. Whenever you try to be a reformer, mm-hmm. you're going to get shot at. Yeah. And you have to know that comes with the territory of reform. So you'll sometimes hear me use language where I'm trying to correct mistakes of the past. Mm-hmm. Let me be very clear. When I say the past, I'm talking about my own father. Yeah. And my mother, who's here in the congregation, is now one of the reformers. You'd be shocked. People email me over the years and say, I wonder what your father would say about what you're doing. Well, assuming he had spiritual growth and hadn't died and gone to heaven, you know what I'm saying? Assume he was here with us. And the Holy Spirit was enlightening him as he is all the rest of us here. Mm-hmm. We assume he'd be championing the cause just like my mother is right now. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what I'm trying to hint at is when you hear me speak against, hey, this was wrong in the past. Let's correct this. I'm not being dismissive of the previous generation, no. nor am I being derogatory to the previous generation. In some ways, they were very faithful because they handed to our present generation what they were handed. The problem is the model was broken when it got handed to them. So I'm not speaking against those generations. And you'll often hear me say this, those people gave us the gospel. Mm -hmm. Let's not be disparaging towards them, demeaning towards these people were faithful men and women of God who brought the gospel to us in our youth and in our childhood. And a lot of spiritual development as well. Not just the gospel. Sure. You know what I mean? Sure. There, there's reasons that you they were can right quote the on King most, James. On most things. <laughs> there's yeah. reasons that you can just break into the King James a lot of times yeah. and quote random parts of the Bible. Yeah. That's be, that's from it's in me. the influence they of your that in father. Me. That's yeah. right. Right. But when we're talking about reforming, we're talking about reformation back towards the model right. that is instructed in Correct. scripture. You yeah. know, when we see things that have shifted away, it's just that they've shifted away from the model that was established by right, Christ right. ultimately. So when we go to reform anything, when we look at any practice or belief even that we have mm-hmm. that is different than what was established by Christ in the New Testament, then we want to say we're going to do everything that we can to return to that model because right. that's the model that's ultimately important. That's the model that matters. And that's the model that we have elected to follow up when paul's using the language and he may be using it in a way where though you have ten thousand instructors it may be that some of their present instructors are pulling them away from the gospel but we know that they're pulling attention away from the gospel because of the way that they're aligning themselves with it and so paul focuses them back on their roots yeah and says although you may have a gazillion voices trying to speak into your lives you only have one father And the way you came to faith was through the gospel that I brought to you. Mm -hmm. So I just want to hearken to this. I'm saying this in a very positive way. Paul reminds them, don't dismiss the old guy. I brought you the gospel. Mm -hmm. And that is the foundation for your standing in Christ right now. And again, he never says they're not saved. Mm -mm. They are saved. They just don't act like it. That's the problem. And they don't, they've not yet adopted a Christian worldview. He loves them deeply, or he wouldn't be going through all of this effort. He uses the language, as David, you used on Sunday when you talked about your father. And again, this is all framed in a relationship. I am your father. I love you. And so I'm going to speak to you like a father. You may have a a million voices in your life, but don't don't tune out your daddy. And remember, it's through the gospel that I have birthed you. 
in, in a spiritual sense here. So even as we talk about reforms and, and we talk about previous generations and broken models, uh, I want to be sure that all of our listeners understand and be very careful. These, these people who gave us the gospel, the previous generations of Christians, we stand hand in hand with these people. Yeah, they're a part of that cloud of witnesses. That, that absolutely, talks about in Hebrews. we love yeah. them very yeah. much. They gave us yeah. the gospel and our faith. Yeah. They delivered it to us, and it, it is our job now to be good managers of right. the mysteries, be faithful right. and to, to the be gospel. faithful to the gospel. That's right. What a great discussion today, guys! Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking time out of your day to listen to our discussions. We want you to be a part of them. So again, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, text. Anything that you want to say to 817-809-3040. We'd love to continue this conversation with you. We'd also love you being engaged in our other content that we're developing and presenting either in person here at Cornerstone on Sunday mornings or on our podcast that goes out every single week with our sermon content, with these Cornerstone conversations, with our social media posts. There's so many ways that we are purposefully working together to be engaged. We've been at a certain pace for the first four chapters. Next week, things are going to shift a little bit. We're gonna actually go into chapters five and six, and then we'll start looking at very specific situational moments as the book continues. We want to make sure that we are interpreting it as it's been written, We hope that you're engaged in that and that you continue to study as you enjoy and work through the letter of 1 Corinthians 